you guys, can I be serious for a moment here? I don't know. Can you? May I? What do you, you're my grandma Reba. <laughs> this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, back from his travels and so happy to be joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello, welcome back. It's so nice to see your little face. On the Zoom screen, my little face on the little Zoom. And uh, also tablet senior writer, Liel Leibowitz. My tefillat haderech, the prayer for travel work. Here you are, back in one piece. I am back. I am safe. Your prayer worked. I, by the way, also prayed for like upgrades. They should really upgrade the tefillat haderech. Like, and may the Lord protect you. May he also upgrade you to economy plus. Made the complimentary breakfast at your Holiday Inn Pea Bounty phone. So from what I could tell, Comfort Plus, as I walk, I, I always have lots of opportunity to inspect the Comfort Plus people as I walk past them on my way to the back of the plane. You don't have enough miles yet? You'd think I would. I always put in for, may I have the upgrade? but I don't get the upgrade. That there is Jewish history in one sentence. We always put in for the upgrade. We never get the upgrade. <laughs> hey, can we please have a state of our own? No. No, we are literally the beta version. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which has since been repackaged and resold. Were the people who show up very early on in the boarding process be like, if it's possible, please, maybe we can. And then Christianity is just like that hot couple that walks in three minutes before they close the gate, be like, we're on our honeymoon. And everyone's like, oh, first class Upgrade. for you beautiful people. <laughs> the list of people who can get on before me just gets longer and longer. God, like, I'm so glad you're back. I, I can't even tell you. I'm coming in hot today. But I do want to mention before we get to me that we have two amazing Jews this week. Liel's hero, Ruth Weiss, the retired Harvard Yiddishist and Hebraist and professor of all things Jewish literature, is here to talk about her new memoir with Liel. And also, gosh, a lot of Liel this week. Uh, he had a conversation with cookbook writer Dorothy Kalins. We have a lot to talk about. It's great to be back, but a little about my travels. So the book tour is over. This was the last, I mean, I have upcoming stuff. In January, I'm going to be in Mobile, Alabama, and I'm going to Dallas and Philly in February and March. But basically, we're downshifting into like one or two nights a month. The big rush is over. And it ended with this great cross-country sprint. Wednesday night, I was in Chicago at Anshay Emmett, which actually is Yonit Levy's childhood school. It's where she went to day school, Anshay Emmett Bernard Zell Day School, which you talked about on the episode I was there. Represent. I walked past the door to her day school on the way to go inside. Is it named for her? Should be. It, it's the Yonit Levy Bernard Zell Anche Emmett Boys Town. <laughs> Unholy. Because it's actually, it's actually right. right next to the, the gayborhood, uh, right next to the water, right next. It, it was great. And I had a great time there. Then was home for one night, then got back on a plane, went, flew to Detroit, where the great Eric Olson, a charter member of the J Crew, picked me up to take me to Ann Arbor where I spoke at his congregation, Rabbi Josh Winston's congregation. And that was a party. And then Scholar in Residence Weekend, Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, three talks at Temple Emmanuel of Palm Beach. Before you get to Palm Beach, tell us about your order at Zingerman's. Okay, so, right. So let me let me take you through it. So first of all, in Chicago, Anshay Emmett, great people. Who shows up but Bob Lehrer, whose son Eli was in high school with me. The parents, Mama and Papa Brown, parents of Tessa Brown, whom I taught at a summer program in 1998, I think, they show up. And then zooming in is my old grad school advisor, John Butler, who now lives in Minneapolis, but he was zooming in. So it was like all these parts of my world's colliding in Chicago. And that was, that was super fun. Then in Ann Arbor, yes, I did go to Zingerman's and 
I'm not going to discuss my order because as you know, I represent vegetarianism on this show. And, um, <laughs> it sounds like you didn't represent but it there, here's, but here's no. what I want to say, but here's what I want to say. Zingerman's, as we know from the episode of this show where we interviewed Zingerman's founder, Ari Weinzweig, is more than just a deli. It's, it's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. And it's also an amazing market. I am a huge mustard fan, but I figured confronted with the most astonishing array of gourmet mustards I've ever seen, local mustards, artisanal mustards, German mustards, Austrian mustards, you name it. I had no choice but to expense three jars of mustard to the unorthodox expense account and have them shipped to my house where they were waiting for me when I got home late last night. This, by the way, is the greatest insight, I think, about a show ever. If, if you thought the, the celebrity life was all, you know, <laughs> champagne and blow and limousines, it's jars of artisanal mustard in delis across the country because we're Jews. By the way, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just imagining you sitting at your hotel suite <laughs> and like basically arranging like lines of like Dijon mustard with your credit card, like in Miami yeah. Vice. Chopping them up really fine. Really, really fine. <laughs> so, okay. So I got my mustard in Ann Arbor where, by the way, who showed up but old school J. Crew member Shoshana Wechter. Who came with us last time to Zingerman's. To Zingerman's. To an amazing breakfast. To Zingerman's. Right. Who is so important to our, our whole Michigan experience. Yes. So she was there and she had me inscribe a copy of her book, I believe to her and her mom, whose name I want to say was Meira. So that was great. Then I fly from there to the West Palm International Airport and, you know, had this scholar in residence weekend at Temple Emanuel in West Palm, which was awesome. And I just want to single out I mean, everyone there was great. And I'm going to give some shout outs in the credits later and rabbinic supervision and all that. It was a, just a swell weekend. But I want to single out high school senior Andrew Grubb, who is one of the younger members of the J. Crew, who drove 90 minutes from his home in Weston, stayed overnight with his grandma two nights, I believe, so that he could go to all my events, had me sign his book, and is like getting everyone at Weston High to listen to Unorthodox. And I just want to tell you, like he's a high school senior. He told me everywhere he's applying to college. I'm putting in calls for him. I'm pulling strings. I'm donating <laughs> buildings. And this guy, he wants to major in, I think, poli-sci and accounting, which he called the Jewish double major, which <laughs> like he was a funny wow. dude. He's a huge fan. Handsome as they come. Andrew Grubb, you made my weekend. The kids are all right. And, you know, I don't think that I'm a Palm Beach guy, except that I do love the ocean and it was super warm in December. But I do want to say that, you know, it was the nicest old people and the nicest young people that I've ever met. No, no middle-aged people at all. There were no middle-aged people, but, you know, there were some old people and <laughs> there was Andrew Grubb. He's the Jewish future. There were actually, actually I did, the, per, the people who brought me in were um, a relatively young married couple. Scott Holtz and his wife, Cecilia, who are big J. Crew people. He's 74. She's uh, 68. <laughs> there's, there's so much going on in Palm Beach. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh -huh. Let's do some news of the Jews who are not us. I actually, you know, been keeping only one eye cocked on the news, and I'll just bring this one up, which is following the example of a lot of other publications, the New York Times has finally updated its style guide to replace anti-Semitism with a hyphen and a capital S for Semitism with just one word, anti-Semitism. I learned this from Great Daily Email Blast newsletter Jewish Insider, which wrote, the change, which removes the hyphen and lowercases the S, 
comes in response to a growing chorus of Jewish activists who've argued the traditional usage distorts the true meaning of the term. Let me give my explanation of this because I have followed this debate as I think we all have, which is that when you do the traditional thing where it's anti-Semitism with a capital S, you are like reifying this thing called Semitism and Semites. And you're saying that like, they don't hate Jews, they hate Semites, but A, no one really knows what a Semite is. No one uses that term anymore. And B, to the extent that it is in usage, it refers to people of Middle Eastern origin that includes many people who are now Arab and Muslim and so forth. So there's this weird move, follow me carefully here, J. Crew. there's this weird move that some anti-Semites do where they say, how could I be an anti-Semite? I love Arab people and Jewish people and all Middle Eastern people. So I don't hate Jews. Like, you know, I like the Semites. And so they kind of like squirrel away from the question of, do you hate Jews or not? By focusing on what is this Semitic ethnicity thing? I don't hate people with that ethnicity. So the, the move is actually anti-Semitism is not about hating the Semites. It's just one word. It's anti-Semitism. And it, it's a synonym for Jew hatred. So I will just add here that if I'm not mistaken, Alan Dershowitz in his book, Chutzpah, or somewhere else, used to make the argument that we shouldn't even use anti-Semitism at all. He wanted us to use the term Judeopathy for people <laughs> who, who loathe the Jews. And I flirted with that for a, a few years in my 20s or 30s. It's was like, I'm, I hate those Judeopaths. And then I realized that I was not going to make that stick. Judeopath. We've talked about this, right? It sounds like there's something wrong with, I mean, there is something wrong with you, but like. <laughs> right. Oh, I can't come for coffee today. I have a 3.30 with my Judeopath. It's really hard to get an appointment with. Oh, you, oh, it's a, it's a healing professional in Liel's. Of course it Liel, is. For Stephanie, yes. it's a disease. You have your analyst and your judeopath. <laughs> I have my Feldenkrais guy and I have my judeopath at, at four. Uh, look, it's it's uh, really good to know that the New York Times is no longer anti-Semitic. It's now anti-Semitic. 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 By the way, this is this is so, so classic. Like, instead of actually fixing the inherent hatred of Jews, they're like, we're going to spend some time about how we, what, what's the correct terminology and spelling of this term of which we're totally guilty? Yeah, they're, they're the people who argue that this doesn't actually solve any anti-Semitism. It's just, but I will say, look, we've had John McWhorter, our favorite linguist on, and he's talked about like, when you change the way people speak, it does push us on the course to, to changing how we think. And so, look, tablet style change. Tablet is now anti-Semitism, one word. Yes, but if you really want to change it, how about Jew-hating motherfucker? I mean, that's great for me. Like, as in Louis, Louis Farrakhan, the Jew-hating motherfucker, said today XYZ. Like, that actually has like a punch to it, no? Honestly, I do think that Jew-hatred, anti-Semitism with a capital S with a lower S, you know, Judeophobia, Judeopathy, these all are kind of like overly fancy words for what might best be just called Jew-hatred. Yeah, I like that. Yep, Jew hatred. But is Jew hatred hyphenated or is it one word? I think it's hyphenated and the H is capitalized. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, help us out here. Can we, are we missing something? 914-570-4869. Give us, give us a pithy voicemail, which is your preferred term for the, uh, the activity of hating your people. Speaking of, of Jew hatred, can we discuss the greatest anti-Semitic conspiracy of, of our time? Ever. The greatest yes. crisis facing the Jewish people at the moment? Stephanie? Yes. As we, we talked last week about the great cream cheese shortage of 5782, and we have an update because the plot, dare I say, thickens. Oh, I was going to say, you're going to, are you going to whip up a furor about this, <laughs> Stephanie? <laughs> so here, this is from the New York Post, which is exactly the place you want to be getting your punny, your punny news from. 
An online schmear campaign is partly to blame for this <laughs> curdling situation. So, okay, listen to this. This is the craziest thing in the entire world. The cream cheese shortage that is spreading supplies thin. <laughs> I'm not going to get to the point at some point. It's just going to keep going. By the way, to stretch the same joke, I could actually imagine them like doing lines of cream cheese while coming up with nothing but puns for like seven okay, hours. Listen, listen. It was apparently bolstered by a cyber attack on one of the biggest cheese manufacturers in America. So Wisconsin Schreiber cheese was hacked in one of those things where they basically say, like, we're going to hack your system until you give us money or something like that. But basically, so when hackers toasted its plants and distribution centers with an October cyber attack that forced the company to close for days. So basically, they got hacked. They got to, had to shut down their, their whole distribution center and that basically snarled. It's basically like the port situation, the cream cheese analog uh, for our days. And we're still seeing the effects of that. Cream cheese production fell in October 6.9% from last year, this article says. So like there is like an actual, there is, this is bad. Rabbi Levy Teldon on Twitter, at Alamo Rabbi is his handle. He just, he just kind of summed it up. He said, if Jews control the world, explain the cream cheese shortage. You can't. I actually think that's really profound. I mean, it's true. Like there's no universe in which if we have this kind of unlimited world-defining power, we can't get our cream cheese. Like it, it just shows how powerless we actually are. It shows that we're, we can't even get our cream cheese. Who needs to control the weather if you can't control the cream cheese production in this country? Like, what's the point? I will say that Haley Shulman in our Facebook group brought up a very interesting point. First of all, she says, is anyone else craving bagels more than ever because of this? Um, am I a bad person to get a bagel? But what she points out is, the real issue is how much schmear you get at a lot of ba these bagel places. Ooh. And she attaches a photo of a bagel she got that was just like oozing schmear. And if there is, in fact, a schmear shmortage, maybe this is the time for bagel places to just like go a little lighter. No one actually wants that much schmear. No one actually wants that much schmear. I've been saying this for decades. I agree. And I actually find it unusual that I'm on the same page as you guys on this, because usually when we talk bagels, <laughs> I end up feeling like a sort of outsider, New England waspified. Right. Like the sort of guy who grew up going to friends. Right. Because and I, it often comes up in the toasting thing where I say, of course you toast a bagel because first of all, they're crispier and they taste better. And then some asshole who like has never left the island of Manhattan is like, no, 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 because bagels are always warm. And my point right. is yeah, not, not in Western yeah. Massachusetts, they're not. They're not We're always warm. And that. that's real. That's real New York privilege. Like, sure, if you grow up, you know, in the whole, in the, the bagel triangle, the tri-bagel area, you can always get a warm bagel and you don't have to toast it. But some of us actually, the bagels are not being churned out at, you know, the 20,000 a minute rate. And it's a little bit cooled and you have to toast it. So usually I'm on that side. I would have thought actually that maybe it was also some vestige of my New England childhood that I thought like you put on a layer of cream cheese the way you put on a layer of butter and that's it. And that maybe in New York, they were always putting on a whole Philly's cream cheese box worth of schmear for just one sliced bagel. But you're telling me, no, you're with me on this. Like a nice little thin layer is adequate. And it's just, it, what is it? Is it just the Einstein bagels, the lender? Is it the kind of mollification, the supersizing of everything? No, because that happens here in, in this bagel bastion of New York City, right? You go and like, I'm always like scooping out schmear. There's like at least half of the schmear is left over, I would say for most bagels after they're consumed. And now is the time to start conserving. By the way, it's literally and such big portions, which is a problem we've never had to know about. <laughs> we've never known from this problem.
Dorothy Kalins is a cookbook writer and the former editor-in-chief of Sever magazine. Liel talked to her about her new book, The Kitchen Whispers, and what she learned about living, loving, and believing from watching some of the world's greatest cooks in action. Dorothy Kalins, thank you so much for being our guest. I'm very happy to be here. I got to tell you, The Kitchen Whispers, Cooking with the Wisdom of Our Friends, I don't remember a book that has left me feeling quite so moved and warm and just cheerful and optimistic about the human condition. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Hope. Mm-hmm. My task right now is very difficult because the book is so dense with amazing anecdotes. And I just feel like sitting everyone down and, and having you read basically the whole thing. But I want to try and make sense of it in the following way. So. I want to start with a confession. I wake up every morning and among the first, if not the first thought that I have is, what am I going to cook for dinner? And then I go through my head, like, where will I go for the ingredients and how will I prepare it? And I imagine the process. And this is something that I haven't shared with anyone, honestly, because it felt weird. It felt obsessive, compulsive and, and kind of strange. And then I read your book. And there it is. I'm doing your the same thing. Cooking as a thinking theory. Yes. Tell me all about it. Walk me through it. Make me feel better about myself. There are many things that I would like to change about myself and my life, but that particular obsession I have made peace with. I think what it does is it gives a kind of shape to my life. It gives me some confidence that I, I know where I'm going. Okay, I have these meetings, I have this thing, but then I have lunch and then I have dinner. And I kind of know that those are posts in the ground and that will allow me to carry on. And so let's play a version of uh, Inside the Actor's Studio. Let's call this Inside the Great Cook's Studio. Walk us through what a thought process focused on a meal looks like to you. I bought at the farmer's market last week these adorable little butternut squashes. And they were on my mind yesterday morning when I woke. And I thought, oh, well, my friend David Tannis has a recipe in a couple of New York Times a week ago or two weeks ago for uh, butternut squash pie. Okay, then I think, but I'm not a pie baker and I don't make pie crust. But then I remembered that I had in the bottom of my freezer frozen pie crust shells. They've probably been there a year and a half. <laughs> Who knows? But I said, Okay, then I need some greens. So when we went to the market yesterday, I got some turnips with beautiful greens and I got some radishes with beautiful greens. And I thought, okay, those will be the greens, even though David wanted me to use something a little stronger like kale or collards or something. I thought I'm going to use what I what I have. And I, that's what I made last night for dinner. And it was and I could carry that with me the whole day. And it was a kind of way of providing for the family and and doing that. So I guess it's reassurance. You know, innate in this story, as in this truly wonderful, wonderful book, is the notion that even though this thought process may appear kind of strange and maybe even solipsistic, it is innately connecting you to other people. Here you are, you're not just thinking about the butternut squash or the turnip. You're thinking of David Tannis, your friend, the great former chef of Japanese and currently New York Times writer. And so much of this book is about how our relationships are shaped by the things we observed others do. So I don't want to spoil the fun. There is so much richness in this book. And there are so many heroes of mine, including David Tannis, including Marcel Hazan, including Michael Solomonov, that you 
bring to Wonderful Life. But but give us a taste, an amuse-bouche, if you will, uh, of, of some of these amazing, amazing characters and, and the very simple yet deeply profound things that they taught you. I have been a magazine editor my whole professional life. And then after I left Newsweek, which was my last magazine post after 9-11 and two wars, I decided to go back to food because I had found the magazine Sever. And I found that very nurturing. So what I wound up doing was to produce cookbooks with some wonderful, wonderful people. And I learned from them. I was no fool. I mean, not only was I serving the need of the project that I was working on, but I was learning from them. I mean, just from as basic as when we were doing a book with Michael Anthony, who is the executive chef at Gramercy Tavern, Michael spread a dish towel on the counter, dampened it a little bit, and then put his cutting board on top of it. I thought, duh, that is such a rewarding thing to learn how to do. And I think in a way, it's almost a little bit like prayer. You, you make a place, a sacred place, and you're going to, this is, this is intentional. It's not just slapping things together and throwing them in a pot. And the little things you learn are as important as the complicated cooking techniques and it changes and informs your approach to making dinner. Now, so much of this book really revolves around these relationships, which which is very evident from the book. These are real intricate relationships that last over decades and decades. It kind of appeared to me, though, as I was reading that sadly, we're moving, I think, maybe away from this. I mean, so much of cooking now either happens online in those videos that you so wonderfully describe in which disembodied hands at triple speed <laughs> prepare things and or in sort of like impossibly high tech. Oh, here is the new $4,000 gadget that would peel, you know, garlic for you faster than anything before. Do you feel that? Do you feel the kind of the winds of time blowing at our necks? I absolutely do feel the winds of time. Uh, I have a son who's 28 years old, and I have a cookbook library, which much like your library of books, it goes the whole length of my office, hundreds of books. And if he wants to cook something when he sails through our house, he will go to the computer and download something. He will not open a book. And I feel... So disconnected when that happens. I physicality of a, of a book is now maybe that's generational, and maybe you know. I mean, I'm not saying you can't learn things from from online recipes and from blogs and super smart people who do that, but it is deracinating. It removes you one more step from the elemental experience. What my intention was with this book is kind of to connect people back with the impulses and the ideas and the joys and the pleasures that they have knowingly or not learned from other people. And what I mean knowingly or not, they maybe have not made that connection. Oh, my mother used to do that. Or, oh, my Aunt Sally used to do that. Those are the things that run through your mind. And I realized that I was doing this out of gratitude to the people who I've learned from. So it's not a great epiphany, but it's a it's an impulse that I've shared. And I think people react to that. Well, I, I actually think it's it is a great epiphany. And, and you describing the preparation of the place of work as akin to a religious practice, I think, is 
It's very true because I think just like many of us have lost our religious imagination by growing up in secular societies, we literally, I mean, yes, we could read a book about God and prayer, but then we come to pray like, what do I do now? It's weird. I think the same goes goes for cooking, especially because, again, so much of it seems to be so kind of high-end pressurized product right now. And, and your book really sends exactly the opposite message of, of hey, this is... This is an elemental form of connection between human beings. It's a human impulse to connect in this way. Now, by the time the book comes to its conclusion, you yourself undergo a slight conversion, this time to, uh, to all things Israeli cuisine, thanks in part to the good influences of Michael Solomonov. Tell us about that awakening. Tell us about the Amba journeys. That was an extraordinary thing for me because my husband, Roger Sherman, is a filmmaker and he made a film with Mike Solomonov, who was the chef from notably Zahav in Philadelphia. When he went to Israel and came back the first time, he found so many interesting things to make a film about. And I was with him at a film festival when people asked him, well, he had shown another film and they said, well, what's your next project? And he said, it's it's going to be a film about Israeli cuisine. And the place laughed. <laughs> the room broke out in, in, in laughter because they were picturing Ashkenazi chicken boiled to mm-hmm. within an inch of its life. And what indeed he found was a reliance on fresh vegetables that make us blush in shame. And through Mike, he learned that there are certain spices and preparations that enhance, that have been used for, by the way, thousands of years, that enhance foods, such simple things as tahini. So then what happened was Mike was in New York, came up to work with Roger on his film, and my office is next to Roger's, and Mike stuck his head in the, in the door and he said, would you be interested in working on a book with me? And I said, yeah, I, I really would, because I, that's what I do. I produce cookbooks. And I didn't realize that that process would open a world to me of foods and flavors that I had never known or used or relied on. And through the course of that, I learned ways to enhance the flavor of my food that I never even knew existed. You mentioned amba the Iraqi originated, um, you know, when you think about it, it actually comes from India by way of the spice root. It has some curry undertones to it. But at any rate, amba, a very simply made mango pickle puree, is what I rub on my chicken and roast it. And it's heavenly. It smells wonderful when it's cooking. And it's, it's so flavorful. And it's so easy. Mike has a little preparation that he uses on the grill, which is to take maybe a cup of amba, which it comes in a jar. I mean, we know we tell you how to make it, but you don't have to make it. You can buy a jar. It's perfectly fine. And puree it up with a little bit of water and a chopped onion. And then marinate the chicken, the raw chicken, in that overnight. And, ah. Well, it's better if you have a grill because everything is really is better on a grill. But if you don't, you can do it in your oven, which I have done many times in my New York high rise. 
And it's just extraordinary the way it changes your life, the way those flavors. When we started to do the Zahav cookbook with Mike and Steve, I realized that people didn't know what tahini was, tahina in Israel, in Hebrew. They had no idea where it came from. It comes from a, some kind of can that's oily on the bottom, you know. <laughs> and it took three young Philadelphia young women to start a company called Zoom, which made a huge difference in Mike's life. That's what they use in all their restaurants. And what's I start ordering, you know, I order from them online and I get Zoom and I make I make as hummus, do I. as do you. I mean, it's so things like that can change your whole food vocabulary. I mean, harissa, the hot sauce, the pepper sauce that is made beautifully. And just a little bit of that vocabulary of food changed my life. And I, I, you know, I wanted to write about that because I think it can change other people's lives in a very easy, relatively inexpensive and low effort way. It changed our lives, too. My children, when they were very young, we took them to Zahav for dinner once. And after that, their favorite game for a long while was playing Zahav, in which they would make me make stuff out of the cookbook. And then they would pretend we were there. They were the waiters. Uh, and when I told Mike Salamanov about it, he very graciously sent two kitchen aprons with the kids' names <laughs> embroidered into oh, them. Oh, that's great. Because <laughs> they're clearly brainwashed in all the right ways. So let me ask you, as, as someone who, uh, the founder of Saver and, and someone who's really kind of seen the changing face of, of American thinking about cooking from the aspic happy 50s to our advanced state today. What food movement, you know, we've had the slow food movement, we've had organic movement. What food movement do you think we desperately need today? What what kind of major shift in perception do you wish people? We just need a, lo- a lack of pretense and a lack of feeling like there's the new next thing about anything. I mean, when I talk about these things that I've learned from Mike and Steve, they're only thousands of years old. In other words, I'm not newest, hottest, cutest, fastest. I'm not interested in that. I never was as a magazine editor. I just feel like we need to get deeper into what we're doing and give each thing kind of meaning. I mean, I start the book talking about washing lettuce and being mindful about, I don't mean worshiping the the leaves, but I mean, I remembered that this French grandmother saying to me, you know, you have to wash the lettuce leaves three times because the dirt is going to cling to the leaves. Just yesterday, I came back from the farmer's market and was doing that. And I think about that woman in my head as I do that. And that gives me a kind of sense of continuity with what every other cook has experienced. And I think it's going deeper rather than going next you know, again, I, I don't necessarily have anything against technology and cooking if it gets you more interested in it. That's fine. Whatever works for you. Except for the Instant Pot, which you seem to truly oh, love. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good for you. you pick, yeah, just exactly. I mean, I just, no, thank you very much. Tell me why. I'm very curious as, as someone who, who owns a few of them. Uh, and, but you and see, you have them. young kids and I probably would. I probably would. I mean, Lincoln, when Lincoln moved in for a while during the pandemic and then moved out again, he brought his Instant Pot with him. And he there were a couple of nights that he, I said, okay, fine, make us dinner. And he made us, you know, chicken stew or a beef stew or something like that. It was perfectly fine. I love the smell of onions in the olive oil 
and I love to put the meat in and saute it. And and that feeds me. If it doesn't feed other people, that's fine, as long as you get fed. (laughs) So one last question. Um, What do you think would be the kind of one bit of wisdom, of cooking wisdom, that you hope people would remember you by? I think it's to recognize the people in their lives they've learned from. I think we're not aware of the grandmother telling us to wash the lettuce three times. I think they're not aware of the first time they saw something done in a way that made sense to them that they could replicate in their own. I think there's a kind of continuity and gratitude that comes from the way we've learned. I mean, we don't have to learn from necessarily older people. We can learn from younger people, too. We can learn anywhere. It's just that we're always learning and to recognize and be grateful for those lessons. Dorothy Kalins, this book has brought me such joy, and I hope it does to uh, everyone listening to us now as well. Thank you so much for being our guest. Well, you're wonderful. Thank you so much. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. Okay, guys, 
it's one thing to send fabulous stuff to our virtual mailbox, right? Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. I don't know if I should be flattered or afraid that stuff is now showing up at home. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is happening to you guys, Stephanie and Liel, but I got two bits of mail from listeners in the past month to my house. One is from longtime listener, Lewis Stone, who sent me, I kid you not, a wooden clothes hanger. And I looked at it and on it were stenciled the words, Sheraton Kimball Hotel, Springfield, Massachusetts, which I know well. I didn't know that it was once the Sheraton Kimball. And with it was enclosed this note. It said, Dear Corduroy Rav, from your loyal podcast listener, Re Hanukkah. <clears throat> Given your Springfield roots, I saw this and thought of you. For the Rav who has everything corduroy and thus needs to hang his garment. Enjoy. But that wasn't the only thing I got in the mail, right? Listener Karen Chisvin from Toronto sent me a package. I didn't know what it was. It was not a clothes hanger-shaped package. It was a little lumpier, but inside it was an old, thick paperback of the 1925 international bestseller Jew Seuss, that's S-U with an umlaut S-S, Jude Seuss, by the Bavarian Jewish novelist Leon Feuchtwanger. It has this bodice-ripping cover that shows this handsome, silver-haired Jewish man who is being, like, clinched between two buxom women— and accompanying it was a long letter in beautiful cursive penmanship, which basically reads, I will summarize, I thought of you when I found this old copy of this book, and I actually started reading the book, and it's amazing, and you should check out page whatever. And she gives me this sort of cliff notes to the book and wants me to read her copy of Jew Seuss. Which was Dr. Seuss's uh, unfortunate sophomore <laughs> I would not hate you in the house. So I have a clothes hanger. Basically, my whole boudoir is being improved. I have a, a clothes hanger on which to hang my corduroy garments. I have night table reading. Stephanie, can, can you top that? I can because Lou Stone also sent me a Hanukkah gift. He actually sent me a beautiful photograph he had taken of um, a synagogue. He sent me that, I think, for my wedding. So he, I'm like very gifted by Lou Stone. I got a package to the tablet office and it was addressed literally on the envelope to Hava Rachel, which is my Hebrew name, <laughs> and slash <laughs> Stephanie Butnick slash Edith's mom, which is the trifecta of how I'd like to be referred to um, yeah. at this point forward. And he writes, a while back, there was a discussion of this book, which you had not heard of. I found a copy for you at the local used bookstore. So Lou Stone gave me a copy of The Jewish American Princess Handbook. I did not know it existed. Reading the front and back cover is like <laughs> so deeply amazing and offensive. Some of the cover lines include choosing a ring suitable for upgrading, <laughs> non-humid honeymoon spots, the allowance, guilt without guilt. Proper breeding, six-figure dating, identifying MOTs. Uh, this Amazing. Is, Just amazing. And of course, the subtitle is Oy vey, now it's our turn. Because this was in the style of the other handbooks, right? Of the time. The preppy handbook. Right, right, right. We're not spoiled, just selective. So so <laughs> thanks a lot, Lou Stone. Thank you, Lou. It's not like I feel left out or anything. We love that, you, Lou. That Lou, you're two amazing. out of three of us received awesome gifts. But you know what? I don't need your gifts, Lou Stone. Because I have Darren Garnick who describes himself in a note he sent me as a live free or die Jew, which already made my heart sing. He sent me possibly the greatest gift, you know, I've maybe ever received. These are Operation Desert Storm baseball cards. Two stand out. There is the card representing Allied Coalition member, I'm showing this to you, Belgium, <laughs> which Darren Garnick said for me. But, but most impressively, I have Israeli Prime Minister at the time, it's Chak Shamir's rookie card. <laughs> this is like having a Honus Wagner. This is, this is worth a lot. Darren Garnick, my man, I will be cherishing these. Thank you. 
the listeners just keep on giving. They also gave to us in the voice memos and voicemails this week. You can always send us a voice memo to unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Right, but presents are better, to be clear. But presents are better. And these are some voicemails that came in at 914-570-4869. Uh, Steve from Florida wanted to add to our cream cheese report. Uh, down here in Florida, cream cheese is fine. However, Joe's Bagels couldn't get the ingredients for pumpernickel for a couple of weeks. I had to switch to rye. Now that situation's under control. But now the the uh, donut shop, Love Bugs, we can't. They cannot get the stuff for plain cake, old fashioned donuts. It's been several weeks now. That's the situation. And uh, Sam from Plano, Texas, also wanted to add to the cream cheese report, but specifically he wanted to take Liel to task. I'm calling to speak to Liel regarding purity or impurity of cream cheese. Liel. People are entitled to do whatever they want with whatever they want, as long as it's not a crime. And unfortunately, putting things into cream cheese is not a crime, just like putting raisins in bagels is not a crime. So as an older man to a younger man, you really need more fiber in your diet. There are more important things to worry about. Thank you. (laughs) No, Sam. Thank you. And Stephanie, I believe there was a Maj update from the Facebook group. Sue Parker Gerson, right? Yes. Our pal Sue Parker Gerson writes in the Facebook group, love the Mahjong episode. In answer to the question about whether the younger generation is interested in the game, I can tell you that Denver Jewish Day School has a Mahjong club. The two people who take credit for starting it are a teacher who is in my Maj group. Yes, Maj is a word. And the son of one of the other group members. This is like some intergenerational stuff. And apparently Maj is huge in Denver because uh, Callista Hammer replies to say there's also a Denver Young Professionals group. We get about eight people together once a month to play. And speaking of the geographical reach of the people who say Maj versus Mahjong, our pal Jeffrey Grossman said, never heard that word in 65 years in the NYC area. It was one of the first things I heard when I relocated to Seattle. So Seattle and Denver, there's like big Maj scenes happening. I'm sensing that in the Western time zones, first of all, they're saying Maj because they're chill and they're cash. The other thing is these are also places where ultimate Frisbee is huge. And I'm working on a theory here. It'll be more fleshed (laughs) out sometime in 2022. That place, you know, the way that like, Farm states also have good wrestling teams, right? Like Iowa, Nebraska. This is where high school wrestling is really strong. Also high school debate. Like if there's good high school wrestling, there's good high school debate. I think that where ultimate Frisbee is strong, Maj is strong. And I don't have a reason yet. I'm not, I don't have a theory. I don't have an ideology, but I'm working on that. And I hope people can help me. But now I want to leave everyone with the, the best voicemail of the week. And it requires no explanation. Let's have a listen. So... If it happened to me, it's going to be inevitable. So save this for the episode where you talk about people having dreams about the Unorthodox podcast. My dream was that people were convinced that Sarah and Josh, producers, were married. And I knew they weren't, but I was unable to convince anyone. And it was like, this conspiracy that was taking over and there were major implications on the meaning of how the podcast was produced and bias in the production. And then I woke up. Thank you. Hey, 
DJ crew, in the past few years, I've really gotten to know Liel pretty well. And you know, there are certain passions that define his life. He has a true passion for being a family man with, with his wife and two children. He's now a dog owner. That's a passion I've seen grow in him. I've seen him become more religious and fall in love with tefillah. I know that he loves a, a good bottle of, of scotch, but there's nothing that he loves as much and nothing that intimidates him as much to be in the presence of, nothing that overawes him as much as a retired Harvard professor named Ruth Weiss. She is one of the world's leading Yiddishists. And I've heard Liel literally say the words, not only is she smarter than me, but she can drink me under the table. He says her name with such reverence. I mean, it basically turns him into a pathetic little puppy dog. I couldn't possibly have interjected myself into this interview. If Ruth Weiss was going to come on our show and talk about her new book, it had to be Liel and her sitting around a Persian rug, doing little shots of Slivovitz, all lined up in a row. He had her on Unorthodox to talk about her new memoir, Free as a Jew, which not only deals with the past several decades of her life, but also has guest appearances by Saul Bellow and many, many other luminaries of Jewish and world history. Here's Liel Leibowitz with his hero, Ruth Weiss. Ruth, what a pleasure it is to be here. Well, it is terrific to speak with you here. There is so much going on in this remarkable book. If you are the sort of reader who is interested in a pithy and stirring intellectual biography of American Jewish, Canadian Jewish, Israeli Jewish life in the last several decades, this book contains multitudes. And I'll get to some of this later, but I want to start in a scene that really struck me, in part because I have a deep fondness for one of the characters, and in part because I thought it got at something very deep and very sad and and very moving. It's a scene in which you are at the legendary Pripstein camp, and there's another counselor there, a man I I knew well, a man who many of our listeners, I think, have heard of and and, and like dearly, and he behaves poorly. (laughs) Tell us the story. You're referring, of course, to Leonard Cohn. I was not at camp with him that summer, although I knew him before and I know him during and I knew him after. The incident that you're referring to is one that took place in Pripstein's camp. I had been a counselor there for a number of years. And before that, I was a permanent camper at Pripstein's from the age of five. When I was five, I was already sent away for two months to summer camp because my father was afraid that we would get polio. So Pripstein's was basically the camp where I grew up and spent my summers, and my older brother did as well. And it was an amazing camp. Mr. Pripstein had been a teacher in the Jewish school system, and he had decided that this wasn't for him. But he and his wife started a hotel in the Laurentian Mountains that catered to Jewish families, among them Jewish immigrant families like mine. And when Mr. Pripstein saw that all these parents were bringing their children with them, and he obviously must have felt that these parents couldn't do as well with their children as he (laughs) could do if he had the possibility, he turned the hotel into a summer camp. And his priority was teaching us how to get along with other people. Some of the children were very difficult, as children tend to be. But he created a camp that was quite amazing, that concentrated on being human beings of the best possible kind that we could be. It was a Jewish camp, taken for granted, the Jewishness, rather than taught in any way. And it was a wonderful place. 
the counselors, the year that I actually got married and went to Israel for our honeymoon for the summer, that's the first summer that I was not at camp. The counselors that were my co-counselors earlier decided that they wanted Leonard Cohen to come up to camp with them. So they obviously talked him into applying for a job at the camp. And they talked Mr. Pripstein into hiring him, which Mr. Pripstein would not naturally have done because he was not looking for stars or outstanding people. He was looking for nurturing counselors that the children needed. And so Leonard came up there. And then when he wrote his novel, his first novel, which covers those years, he includes a long section that has to do with Breveman, the name that he adapts for his hero. Breveman is a counselor at a summer camp. And when I read that, you know, I, I describe in the book how excited I was about this novel. I mean, Leonard, who was a poet, right, writing his first novel, I was dazzled by this idea because I loved the novel more than I loved poetry, especially at that time. So I wanted this book to be great. So I start reading it very avidly. And then I come to this passages about camp. I couldn't believe it because what he had done is to turn this summer camp into almost the opposite of what it actually was. For the purposes of his book, he needed a camp that was kind of a bourgeois Jewish summer camp, and that he, the artist, was the sensitive flower that really could not adjust and could not accept how callously the children were being treated in this camp. So he completely inverted the reality of the camp. Now, I was by then a student of literature, so I perfectly realized that an author has the right to play with reality any way that they want. I also knew that this was a trope in literature, the sensitive artist in a bourgeois community, right? So I knew what he was doing with that. But it terribly disappointed me that he would take the greater and turn it into the lesser because... Pripstein's was bigger than a young artist, no matter how potentially wonderful he was going to be. Pripstein's educated hundreds and hundreds of people, and it meant the world to those of us who needed that kind of nurturing at that time of our lives. It's a theme that I didn't quite catch the first time I read the book. The second time I read it really struck me. I guess I should have known the title of the book is unimprovable. Free as a Jew, a personal memoir of national self-liberation. And what I got from the Leonard Cohen story and from several other stories is this tension between this um, torrent of artistic libidinal liberation that was so much at the core of the last, or at least the popular imagination of the last 50 and 60 years and an understanding which is much more subtle, and as you say, I think very accurately in the book, intellectually mature, that the great good doesn't lie in the kind of ecstatic moments of, of one person, no matter how talented, but rather real freedom comes from these far more intricate, far less glamorous, but ultimately way more meaningful communal connections. That is one of the insights that I came to during the course of my life, and the tension never stops. 
the tension that I felt throughout was what literature could do, which was obviously remarkable. And you had to make all kinds of allowances for the creative artist because that was the person who was creating music, literature, and all that great stuff. But then there was the Jewish people, the Jewish family. This was the life that I was growing up in that was really always portrayed negatively as the bourgeoisie. And in our case, because our family was pretty well-to-do, we were always the evildoers, as if by having more, we were inevitably depriving others of what they could otherwise have. That was the way literature tended to see the world, and it was not at all the way the world actually was. So basically, it became a question of either trusting your own life, your own experience of life, or putting all your faith in literature and in the excitement that it offers. Sometimes it really is as dramatic as that. You've fallen into that trap yourself. One of the most charming moments in in a book, thick with charming moments, uh, (laughs) has you, and you're probably, what, 17 or 18, right? You're a student at McGill. Yes, exactly. And you're you're taking a class with the legendary Louis Dudek, who is a famous poet and, and teacher of poetry and was also Leonard's teacher and first publisher. And he's having you read Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther. Kindly, kindly set the scene. Well, this was, uh, as I write, I was in literature and I found most of the classes at McGill not terribly inspiring, except for that one series of courses that I took with Louis Dudek. Once you discover a great teacher that you really want in whose class you can't wait to be, you take all his courses. So I took whatever courses he gave. And one of them was this survey of European literature. And one day we were asked to read uh, The Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe that he had written when he was very young. And uh, I read it in great excitement as I read everything in those (laughs) days. Everything was so exciting to me. And um, It is the story of this young man in love, frantically in love, and he falls in love with this woman who is married. And the fact that she is married only makes her all the more desirable. And the work builds in this way with this romantic excitement. I came to class the next day and I was just overwhelmed with this sense of, this is, this is love. This is passion. This is what is required of us. To be passionate in that way. And Louis Dudek, as he sometimes did, he had asked us all to write essays preceding the classes where we would discuss the works. Not after, but before. And when those essays were particularly good, he would call on people in the class to read from their work. And here he called upon this young man to read his work about it. And it turns out that both this young man and Louis Dudek, my teacher, thought that this book was actually a warning against, or should be a warning against, romantic excess. And this was what the young man proved (laughs) in his his essay. Well, I was just devastated. And, And I started to cry in the classroom, and I knew I couldn't be seen crying, so I ran out of the classroom and went into the ladies' bathroom and had a good cry there until I felt that I could return to the class. Well, that kind of cured me of the romantic movement at its pitch. 
And I knew that that was a very important teaching, not just because I wanted to satisfy the teacher, which was part of it, right? That's one of the things that one learns, by the way. You don't learn only from what your teacher likes, but you learn a lot from what your teacher does not like and feels is not good enough. And so that conservative element in Louis Dudek's teaching the Romantic movement was very important in the long run. I mean, at the moment, I just experienced it viscerally. I wasn't doing all that thinking about it. But from that moment on, I became very suspicious of my responses to romantic literature, to Shelley and, you know, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Oh, yeah, right. You see, one became a skeptic in that way because it hurt so much to have been deprived of that moment of romantic passion. But it seems, uh, even even moving past romanticism itself, it seems it really puts you on, on some kind of trajectory because you became one of the most notable literary critics of the last few decades and yet seemed to have always been at kind of an, an inflection point with a literary establishment that was increasingly adamant to acquire for itself this halo of unspoken legislators, etc., and that repeatedly, as you note in the book about your encounter with one famous author, accused you of being just a critic, not someone who could actually really understand the genius of the solipsistic artist creating in chaos. Do you think 20th century literature was, was poor for this liberationist instinct? Well, not the greatest writers, because I think that you could make out a case for the fact that the very greatest writers were all conservative. Dostoevsky, really Christian conservative. One is looking more for Jews who are Jewishly conservative. That's sometimes harder to find, although I'm attracted to those writers. Saul Bellow, I would say, is definitely a writer who would never have wanted to call himself a neoconservative, but of course wrote his greatest work as one. Even Philip Roth's best novel, I think, um, American Pastoral, is written from a conservative perspective. I think that great writers really do come to that realization that the conservative, if you want to call it the Jewish view of life, that one of the things that you have to understand is the reality of limits and of evil. And that in your aspirations to make the world as good as it can be and to live up to your highest potential, you have always to be looking at what could be the bad that can be done almost as much as you aspire to the good. It's the way I understand Jewish life in general. It's the way I, it's the way I interpret the thing which is most important to me in my life, and that is the Passover story. I experienced Passover more intensely than any other Jewish experience because that was what my parents valued most. We were not an observant Jewish family, but Passover, for some reason, 
my mother and father both observed it entirely. They had their own exodus. So they, they escaped Chernovich literally with, with a, a moment's notice, taking nothing with them. Absolutely. And you were four I, at the time? I was four years old. Yes, so that's that might have been the right. main reason that they experienced it. It's also because my father had really grown up in a house where, of course, he knew the Haggadah in his father's chant, and my mother knew how to prepare Passover as they had. So it was it was one of the things that they could do to honor their own past once there was no such past anymore in their lives. So the Seder also emphasizes this very same thing, doesn't it? You begin in slavery and you get to freedom. Oh, freedom, you know. So the way in which my contemporaries would greet that is, oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, you know, freedom ever else. Right. And that was our spirit. Not so entirely. I mean, the first thing that happens in the Seder is that you're free and then you're this crazy rabble and you don't know really what to do. and what you need is, believe it or not, commandments which say to you, do not, you know, do not be this rabble. So what does that say about freedom? Oh, what it says about your freedom is that freedom is the freedom to accept responsibility. And as part of that responsibility, to express gratitude, because that is the most popular song of the Seder, Dayenu. We are grateful for this. And if it, that isn't enough, we are grateful for this. And it would have been enough, we are even grateful for this. And it goes on and everybody sings that. It's all about gratitude and gratitude to the Almighty. Gratitude to something beyond yourself. Gratitude for something which you could not fashion on your own, you see. So there's that amazing tension. I mean, isn't the Haggadah one of the great texts of the world? Isn't it a text perennially as meaningful, as exciting? It's got everything in it, really, that brings a family together, a people together, that sustains us over so many, so many centuries and in so many different contexts. So there was something like that, as rich as that. And then there was literature of the individual breaking out, being free as an individual. Both those things are so amazingly powerful. And look at us. Look at how fortunate we are. We are a generation that is capable of experiencing both those things, weighing them and understanding, you know, the tension between them, but also the balance that can be achieved if you're lucky enough. And yet you make a claim in the book which struck me very hard. You write about the moment where you first encountered Portnoy's complaint and how exciting it was to read that sort of really bacchanalian kind of orgiastic explosion. And then you kind of take three steps back and say something like, well, as someone who's been studying and reading Yiddish literature, the great you know, Jewish Yiddish writers, Reading Roth actually comes as something of a tragedy. I, I want to read a sentence. It's one of my favorite sentences in the book. Even the best writers, you write, can only work with the material they have at hand. And few American Jewish writers inherited anything like the rich Jewishness of Eastern Europe. By richness, I mean the cultural density of a God-inspired civilization cultivated 
through three millennia in multiple Jewish languages with sustained high levels of literacy. You're basically saying, poor boy chick, <laughs> Philip, you know, what could you have done with what you were given? Because the cultural literacy, the cultural baggage that so many of us grow up with is so wanting. That's exactly how I began to feel about Philip Roth. I did feel very sorry for him. He did the best that he could with the material that he had. So it's more and more about that. But then you see how he sucks off Jewish experience. You know, when he goes to Israel in some of his funniest books and some of his best works, you know, he has his characters, you see, going to Israel and then going to uh, the West Bank or, you know, the Shtachim and doing whatever they do. And the character does this and this. He has none of it himself. And so all he can play with, and it, sometimes it does feel as if that's what he's doing. He's toying with it. He, he loves the play with literature, but he has to play more, be in, more inventive with language and be more inventive with the, the style and everything else because he doesn't have that density that I'm talking about, which is there in some of the Yiddish writers without them even asking for it. Which ultimately makes for, I'll say it right, a better literature uh, because it speaks to more profound currents of the human condition. It does. It does. And this was the first argument that I had with Cynthia Ozick before I knew her that you alluded to. I was asked to review her early book and I was asked to review... particular, a comment that she had made about the new Yiddish that was emerging in the United States. She aspired to having a new kind of cultural phenomenon grow among American Jewry, that this would be a kind of an argot of our own, a language of our own that grew out of our own cultural density. And um, the argument was very persuasive. But then when I began to read the literature that was coming out of this supposedly American Jewish cultural community, did it reflect any of that? I found no. That when these writers wanted to portray some thickness of Judaism, some texture that was much richer, they actually had to take their characters out of the community that they actually inhabited and either go back in time and situate their stories historically, or move to the state of Israel, or go into a Haredi community or a more orthodox community and situate their characters there, as, for example, Allegra Goodman does in Catterskill Falls. It's very interesting. But they couldn't write about that Judaism so easily in their own community unless it was satirical and parodic. Because many of these writers themselves had a deeper sense of what Judaism is. The parody comes into it that when they have to describe what's around them, as novelists most often do, what kind of Judaism did they actually see? It it wasn't that new Yiddish, you see. It wasn't that new Yiddish that was emerging. The new Yiddish that has emerged, if it has, and it has, I think, is yeshivish. The people who are, live in the yeshivish world, you know, speak a language all their own. Every second word is a quotation from something. They pun phenomenally. They're very funny, you know. It, it is a whole cultural language of its own. But I wouldn't say that that's the language of, shall we say, the world that we're speaking of right now. That's not the language 
that you and I are naturally using. We're talking about it. I'm not sure that we're talking in it. Every few years, I think, or, or about every other decade, uh, there comes a moment in which two or three or four new young Jewish novelists emerge and are hailed as part of a, a, a new nouvelle vague, a nouvelle nouvelle vague of Jewish American letters. Are you hopeful at all about the possibility of, of a true Jewish American literary renaissance? Do you think that maybe some of these Yeshiva Boichers would, would emerge and, and give us the next Agnon or the next singer? Or is this purely nostalgia at this point? Will, will American Jewish letters go the way of, of Yiddish writers as just something that some scholars read? Well, if I follow the line of thinking that you have so kindly teased out of my book, I would have to turn your question around and say that one would have to begin with what the reality of Jewish life in America is. And that is that if that life is powerful enough, strong enough to sustain itself and also to sustain itself and help America return to what it originally was and can be, if it can work to its own advantage to be as good as Judaism has to be, and if it can make America better, then literature will come out of that. Then a better level of literature will come out of that, a different, a stronger literature. In other words, the culture has to come from the ground up. It's very hard to imagine a genius being born in literary terms outside of a cultural community and outside of a language community that isn't there. Here's how you'd capture the last five or six decades in, in American public life. And, and, and in the later part of the book, you move away from the cultural and into the realm of, of politics. You write about all these movements that came about and had ideas that seemed so more than intoxicating, seemed so, so obviously above reproach. And then you write, what hadn't occurred to me was that in the rush to non-judgment, tolerance would turn to advocacy and advocacy into reverse orthodoxy. Is that a pretty accurate description of, of what is happening to us, particularly as American Jews? Yes. Well, Trilling described the adversary culture very well quite a while ago already, but it has become, it's gone so much further. And, you know, to move very quickly from the world that we were talking about before to the present tense, so much of it is adversarial. And so much of it wants to destroy what America is. Now, the way I think about it is that everything that is called progressive is actually regressive. And if you think of it in that way, it clarifies everything. At least it does so for me. I don't mean this to be name-calling, and I don't mean this crudely, but I mean it quite exactly. What is the most progressive society in the world? It is either the United States of America or the state of Israel. These are the most progressive societies that have been built in the world ever. I mean, democracy, as you find it in this republic here in America, is extraordinary. The way it has balanced things, the way it has made life possible for the individual to believe in individualism and yet to do this within the context of a fairly civilized society. That is so difficult 
It is so precious. It is so rare. And here comes like a whole generation of people who are presumably our thinkers, our elite, the people in our universities, the people who are doing TV programming, the people who are writing the books in many cases. And what are they doing? They are trashing it. They are saying, oh, it's racist. Oh, it is uh, unequal. They are turning it upside down. They are thinking that there's a better model in the world somewhere. What? In heaven? Where is that model? If you look anywhere else, you see what these other, what these other attempts at political organization have led to. They have led to either authoritarianism or to totalitarianism or to sheer despair. What, do you want to turn America into Venezuela just so that everybody should be equally miserable? And then where will they escape to if not to America? So this adversarial culture that Trilling defined decades ago as just really being part of the elite has now kind of become a mob culture, a mob phenomenon, where you have a whole country trying to reverse that great achievement. That's why I would say that if you think of it in a certain way, every time you see the word progressive, think regressive. And then you will really get somewhere because you will see that these people are trying to undo some of the greatness of the balance that has been achieved in American society and in, I would say, in Israel too. The balance strikes me in, in many ways to be intricately tied to an understanding of, of community, which again is at the very core of, of what, if anything qualifies as you know, traditional Jewish values, it's, it's certainly that. And it's interesting to me that as, as someone who has thought a lot about power and has written a marvelous book about Jewish power, you sort of look at the tendency of so much of politics today to be predicated on, on power struggles, on, on simply thinking, well, who is on top and who's a victim and who's benefiting and who's behind? And basically say, I'm sorry, but this way lies ruin. Uh, we're intricately tethered to each other, whether we like it or not. Well, you can be the representative of my ideas any day of the week, <laughs> Liel. <laughs> but we're very fortunate not only to have this deeply moving, essential account of ideas and, and reminder of where true freedom lies, but also to have you as our teacher and our, our moral voice. Ruth Weiss, thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, I'm so grateful to you, Liel. Thank you. Thank you. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov to someone who I still have a really hard time believing is not a Jew. Weird Al Yankowitz, uh, who's really, I mean, American Mozart, the finest musician of his generation, who will be delighting us. Not only is he going back on tour, for which I have purchased several tickets on several different dates, but the tour, get this, is all original material. None of these song parodies, just the deepest of cuts for us biggest of fans. Rav Yankowitz, see you soon. Soon by you. Stephanie, mazel tov. 
I have a muzzle top to the entire class of of tablet fellows. Our listeners know about Quinn, the Quintern, who's amazing, but I've been working with a lot of them recently and they're just really great. And they have a few more weeks uh, left at tablet. And I just think they're all great. So a collective BCC'd mazel tea to the tablet fellows. One might say they are jolly good fellows. They are. And I have a mazel tov to Mark Jacobs, not the fashion designer, but Mark Jacobs, the youth and family programming director of Temple Emmanuel in Palm Beach in the PBI for his engagement. I don't know when he got engaged, but I met his fiance and they're not married yet. So they're engaged. I think a mazel tov is appropriate. He was one of the people, among other things, he was the tech guru who, uh, who made my presentations possible during my scholar in residence weekend. And uh, he has a great beard. Here, by the way, is a guy who always gets the upgrade on the plane. He's like, Mr. Jacobs. Mr. Jacobs. Here you go. First class. Be like, Todaraba, Chavarim. He gets the best seat at Beach A in Palm <laughs> Beach. That's great. <laughs> and, you know, of course, we had a moment where it was like, oh, you spell Mark with a C, you spell with a K. And we had that sort of like that stare down, that sort of that Zoolander like walk off moment. But we made our peace because he was good at his job. He helped me be good at my job. And uh, I, I wish him and his fiance nothing but the best. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, along with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross, who edits the show, along with Robert Scaramucci and Quinn Waller. Managing producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. And if you need last minute Christmas presents, because there's probably a Christian in your life, get some unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. You can email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger and our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by Scott Holtz and Cecilia and by Amy Zoki and by Rabbi Resnick and Hassan Foyer and Claudio the pianist and Temple Emmanuel and all of it in Palm Beach, Florida. We come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.